Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I'm speaking with Tiffany Thomas, our middle school art teacher. Tiffany also teaches journalism in our upper school and guides the award-winning Davidson Day yearbook team. Tiffany is a formerly trained architect and an amazingly creative and talented artist and teacher. Tiffany, welcome. I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Pete. So to kick off, can you tell us where you were born and what your childhood was like? Sure. So I am an Army brat. My dad was in the U.S. Air Force and stationed in Taiwan, Taipei, Taiwan, when he and my mom had me. And I was about two when we flew back over to the United States. My first words were in Chinese, although I don't remember any of that. Lai, lai, lai. (laughs) which means come, 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 come. And apparently our babysitter would often ask me to return my physical body to her because that's where that came from. And my folks were divorced shortly after they returned. So I really grew up in Kansas where both my parents are originally from, but visited Texas a lot. That's where my dad settled and had a pretty traditional upbringing. A sister And although with my dad's multiple marriages, I have stepsister and a half-brother. I have another stepsister and another stepbrother from my mom's marriage. So my family, my nuclear family is quite small, but my extended family is large and interesting. And I think your sister was born in Japan. Is that right? She was. So she's two years older than I, I am. And my dad was stationed in Japan when she was born. It's just pretty cool, like a fun fact, like where were you born? I was in, I was born in Taiwan. It is, although I can't remember any of it. Yeah. It didn't really influence how I grew up. In some ways, it's completely um, innocuous, but you're right. It is a fun fact. Is that on your passport? No, it's not because it was, I was on a military base, oh, an okay. American military base. So unfortunately, I don't have oh, dual been, citizenship or anything yeah. cool like that. Mm-mm. That would have been cool. I know, right? So when did you start creating art? So I didn't have formal training in school, but I did take an after-school art class for a few months when I was probably about 12 or 13. And I can remember I was very proud of a portrait that I brought home and gave to my mom and was absolutely convinced it looked exactly like me. And being the doting mother that she was, she put it up in the refrigerator. She kept it all of these years. I actually still have it. But there was a bit of a running joke that my proportions were off. And so she still points out that my eyes were about three times as big in my portrait of myself as in reality. And maybe it was more a picture of what I wanted to look like. I can't tell you, but I was exceptionally proud of that. I really didn't do a lot of art outside of that formally until I took an art class in college. And it was an elective and it was a sculpture class. And I loved the exploration of materials. I loved being able to invest in a single project over the course of multiple days and weeks. I loved the feeling of creating something that was tangible And I think that experience really stuck with me. So even though my personal route was, you know, my path had lots of bends and turns in it, I think taking that class in college is something that stuck with me for a long time and really kind of led to me wanting to continue to create in that way. And what was it about the class in term, was it the just the materials, the what you were learning? Was it the environment the instructor created? I think it was a little bit of all of that. I think for me the biggest part was, because it was an elective, it was something that I wasn't taking to feed into my core curriculum. And there was a freedom that came with that. I think there was a sense of if I failed, it wasn't a big deal. When I made something that I was really proud of, it seemed like an accomplishment that was unexpected. 
And I think because it was so different from the other classes that I was taking, it balanced out something that I was missing and gave me that sense of accomplishment that was unique and unexpected. And thinking back to your childhood, like what activities did you like to do growing up? Well, I was a dancer, so took lots of tap, ballet, jazz, dance lessons. I did cheerleading in high school. And another class that really stands out in high school, actually, kind of as I'm thinking about this, I realized that it was a very similar experience to that sculpture class in college. My senior year, I had one elective block open. And the class that seemed to fit into that was a drafting class. And Mr. Bryan was my drafting teacher, and he was just a lovely person that shared some of his you know, personal stories with us, as well as guiding us through the technical aspect of architectural and product drafting. And taking that class, before I took that class, I thought that probably I would want to pursue some type of engineering degree in college. And then after having Mr. Bryan as a teacher, And exploring drafting, I knew that I wanted to focus on architecture. I knew that design was something that I could relate to. And I loved the aspect of problem solving paired with creativity. And for me, that just, that felt right. That felt like it was a defining moment. And you have such an interesting background. And so, as you mentioned, you... You studied architecture, and then you focused on architectural illustration. And so what led you sort of from architecture into architectural illustration? Sure. I I went to Kansas State University, and I studied architecture and got a Bachelor of Architecture degree. And I studied, or I worked um, in Vail, Colorado, with a high-end residential firm that was building condos and residences and Beaver Creek Resort architecture um, and had an amazing five years there. While I was working at that architecture firm, I became aware of a field, a career that I didn't even know existed while I was in high school or in college, and that was architectural illustrations. And we at the firm would hire a local architectural illustrator to create three-dimensional renderings of the finished residences or resort buildings in order to use those drawings for either marketing purposes or to present them to the design review board and get approval. So I didn't even know that that existed. This whole idea of you can take two-dimensional floor plans and elevations and then you can make them into a three-dimensional drawing and breathe life into it and suddenly lines that depict stone and wood and steel, suddenly they feel like stone and wood and steel in in architectural illustration. And that was exciting to me. So there was a different aspect of creativity uh, and problem solving that went into that. And so after five years of working with the architecture firm, I decided that I wanted to try my hand at illustration. I had done some of it while working at the firm, But I redirected my attention. I went to Savannah College of Art and Design in order to take some specific classes to help fill in the gaps that I recognized I had. And while I was there, I started my own business and I applied for a business license and reached out to local architects in the Savannah area and printed a bunch of business cards. And quite frankly, for the first year, I kind of felt like a fraud because (laughs) I had printed these business cards saying, I'm an architectural illustrator, and every career you need to have your very first job. And before you have the very first job, you don't have a very first, so you don't have any actual experience. So I was really fortunate that my very first job was an accident. I was actually in a copy like a Kinko's of some sort there in Savannah, getting some materials printed, some flyers of some architectural drawings that I had done so that I had something to show people. And somebody that was there said, I think you should talk to this construction company that is um, outside of Savannah, and they're looking for somebody to do drawings of the homes that they're creating. And so I gave them a call. And as it turned out, the gentleman that had been doing those drawings in the past had moved. And so they were looking for somebody to kind of fill the gap. And I started doing architectural illustration for them. It was a little bit 
of one of those situations where you sit down and you talk to the person and they say, can you do this? And I smiled and I said, I absolutely can. And then I walked out the door and I said, I have to figure out how to do this. But I did figure it out. And over the course of four years living in Savannah, I did over 300 illustrations for them. And they made copies. They were small, eight and a half by 11. And they would give the original to the homeowner as a gift from them, a thank you gift. And then they would make a copy of it, frame it, and put it up on their wall in their conference room. And just before Mike and I left Savannah, I had a meeting with them in their conference room. And their walls had all of my illustrations up. And it was, you know, it was really kind of an overwhelming feeling of moving from that moment of knowing I felt like a fraud to feeling like, well, I think I can say that I'm an architectural illustrator now. It's such a great example of the leap of faith to having the confidence to say, yeah, I'm going to do this. And I can't remember who where I've heard this quote from before, but it just says, you know, jump and the net will appear. It's a great example That's of that. Lovely. And so is that where you met Mike? It is. It is. He was taking classes at SCAD. We actually met at orientation. He was taking classes for a master's of arts, and I wasn't pursuing a degree, just trying to fill those gaps. But we were both taking classes during the summer of 1999, I think it was, and had orientation with a small group of students. And SCAD is just so lovely, and Savannah is filled with charm and history. And so when we met, we were both new to the area and took the opportunity to kind of explore Savannah together. We weathered some storms, literally. The very first date that we had had to be postponed because there was this flood of rain and literally flooded the streets of Savannah. <laughs> literally, I, my sister lived outside of Savannah and she dropped me off and uh, had to drop me off about wow. um, four blocks from my the house that I was renting. And I walked until the waters were ankle deep and then knee deep and then thigh deep. That's dangerous. And then I decided maybe this was a bad idea. And a woman was sitting on her front porch, and I said, uh, do you mind if I use your phone? Because this was before cell phones. And she said, no, come on in. I called my roommate just to see if the house that we lived in was flooded. And she said, no, it's good. If you can get here, the house is good. So I sat out. I stood outside with the, the lady on her porch, and a gentleman came rowing down the <laughs> middle of the street, literally in a canoe. And offered to give me a a lift four blocks away because he was heading in that direction to pick up his daughter after a music lesson. That's funny. Just having that on the ready, just to I have to pick up my kids. So yes. I, I, go. I just take the canoe. Yeah, of yes. course. I should explain. So Mike is your husband, and and he works at the Davidson Day as well, for those who don't know the both of you. And so what was he studying? So he has a Bachelor of Arts degree from Flagler University, and he had been teaching high school art for a number of years in St. Augustine already. And so he was pursuing a Master's of Arts and then later got an MFA, a Master's of Fine Arts. So it was just, you know, I think he's one of these people that enjoys learning as well as teaching and kind of feeding that personal creativity. So he was working on his master's at that time. And just before we get into a sort of your role at Davidson Day is you have quite this, you both do have a, like a circuitous path that led you here. Can you explain that oh my gosh. to the school? Yes, it's the best. It's Actually, one of my personal life philosophies I've decided is that, you know, to be open to the circuitous route, to be open to the bends in the path, I think offers the opportunity for you to become a richer, more diverse, more interesting person. And I think that that benefits you personally. And then it also makes you different. If I had been told when I was in high school that I was going to be an art teacher, then I probably would have channeled my path very directly to get to that end result. But because I had this previous career in architecture and illustration, and then I feel like I've been able to kind of pull from these different aspects of my life. And I think it makes me a different art teacher than if that was a, a direct route. Mike and I lived in Savannah. He finished his master's. And I started my business. And then he was offered a teaching job in Georgia. And so he decided that he was going to take that job and he asked if I would go with him. 
And by that time, I was completely smitten. And I said, I will follow you to Georgia. Absolutely. And so we lived in Georgia for a year. He worked as a teacher in, it was a military high school. And after a year there, he got a call from a friend of his who had taken an art teaching position in Florida and said, you know, as it turns out, there's a position that just opened up. The art teacher that was here just passed away, unfortunately, but they're looking for somebody to fill that position. Are you interested in moving to Florida? And he asked if I would move with him again. And I said, I will. And so we moved to Florida. And I each time I just moved my business with me. So for a while, I had Georgia clients and I had Florida clients for quite a while. We were in Florida for five years. And during that time, we got married. We bought a townhouse. We had a dog and really enjoyed being near the beach and a lot of what Florida has to offer. And then he heard about this job at a little school called Davidson Day and came up to find out more about it, get interviewed. And he called me on the phone. By that time, we did have cell phones. He called me on the phone and he said, I think we would really like it. He said, I'm driving down the street and I see these shops and I see a Panera and you like Panera. (laughs) And there's an Old Navy and you like Old Navy. And there's this really cute little neighborhood in this town called Cornelius. And a few months later, we were packing up and moving up here. One of the things that I've noticed about working with you is that you just have this incredible, seems to be like optimism and uh, warmth. Mm. Have you always been that way? I don't know. (laughs) That's very nice of you to say. Thanks for saying that. Gosh, I don't know. But I probably not. I mean, I think I've grown more into that. And I think one of the lovely things about growing older is that my important things around me are set. Like having met Mike and having settled into our forever home and having found a job that I'm so deeply dedicated and gratified by, I think those major elements of my you know, my story are mm-hmm. in place. And because of that, I feel probably more relaxed than I've ever felt mm. in my life. And I think with that comes the ability to see outside of myself and like live outside of myself and really enjoy the things and the people that are around yeah. me. And it's a unique thing teaching all of fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade art and also teaching yearbook because the age differences is such that. The kids are at a very different place in their lives. The fifth graders are so enthusiastic and ready for anything and completely fearless. The eighth graders are so capable. They're able to take ideas, techniques that they're taught and then translate them through their own personal filter and really create something new and unexpected. And then the high schoolers, honestly, I get the best kids in yearbook. I hate to say that, but it's true. (laughs) They're the ones that are not afraid of taking a really challenging elective class and investing in it. And they have this understanding that, you know, the more that they put into it, then the more that they get out of it. And then they're creating this incredibly special project that is shared with everybody. Honestly, working with the yearbook kids, it's more like working with peers or, mm. um, than it is trying to teach students. They learn a lot, but the vast majority of the yearbook kids, if they start freshman or sophomore year, they stick with it through their junior and senior years. So by the time they've been on staff for two, three, four years, they're incredibly independent. And they're not only capable of using this new software that they just learned and pairing copy and photos to tell a story and breaking up a very large project into more manageable pieces and keeping deadlines and all of the things that they learn along the way. They're not only able to do all of those individual functions, but they're able to kind of imbue their own personal vision into this project so that it really is a reflection of the kids as much as anything else. And I've got a 
few questions about the yearbook, but something which I wanted to mention was, and I think is very, very special about you, is that it's clear that you just love the kids that you spend time with and that, that you teach and that you mentor. I remember when we moved over the summer and it was, you know, very challenging summer of 2020. And normally you would move and your kids would have playdates with people, but that wasn't really happening because of COVID and everything. And then my eldest daughter, Ruby and I were here and she was helping me set up my office and she found you working in your room and you just sort of like took her in and it was just exactly what she needed to be able to step into a school year feeling comfortable because she knew someone, you spent a lot of time with her. I don't know, are you aware of, you seem that you have this seem to like a reverence for kids that you spend time with and it's very obvious that you care a lot about them and they know that. Is that something you actively cultivate or just, is that just happens? I think it's, honestly, I just kind of think that they're pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Like as individuals, they're unique and they each have their own experiences that make them them. And I think I love stories. Mm-hmm. I love stories about what makes people people. Me too. So, yes, just like this, right? Yeah, like this. So, for me, the opportunity to just chat with the kids and get to know what their stories are, that is a window into what makes them an individual. And to me, that is authentically interesting. That is just, we are all so different, and we are all such a collection of our personal histories and there's something about that that makes me feel very big and also very small yeah. at the same time. And knowing that this world is made of so many thousands of people with their own individual stories and as a collective whole, what we can accomplish, how meaningful that is and how quickly that dissipates. I think that therein lies both this fascination with an individual's story and maybe just this feeling that whatever doesn't work out is okay too because that's the part of being small. Yeah. It's one of the things that makes schools like ours so special is it has people like you who see people. It's not just, oh, I'm here just doing a job. It's here that I'm connecting with others and making them... I'm seeing them, you know, and it's such a special thing, especially when you're an adolescent and, well, you know, early teens, late teens, when it's hard to find yourself or sort of feel good in your body, like in terms of like, am I? It's just start to feel awkward and you're taller and all of this type of thing. And then just people just seeing who you are. It's a cool, it's an amazing thing. So thank you. That's very nice. Thank you for saying that. Of course. As an artist, where did you find inspiration or where do you find inspiration and how has that changed over your lifetime of being an artist? Inspiration for me comes, I'm very visceral, it's very five senses and it's usually small things like that hour before the sun sets when the sun is really low in the sky and it casts these really long bluish shadows like, I love that. It almost, like, makes me tingle just thinking of that. Like, a week ago, I was actually trying to kill the grass in the gravel on our driveway. And there was this flower that was blooming in the middle of this gravel. And to me, that is as beautiful and uh, inspiring as, like, an entire field of wildflowers in full bloom. I don't know. There's a lot of beauty in this world. And I think I find tiny moments as inspirational as maybe the big ones. Don't get me wrong. Like, put me in an art museum and I could literally spend a week there. I have a hard time actually getting through things very quickly because I would much rather sit down in front of a scene, in front of a view, in front of a piece of artwork and sketch it and be there for two hours than to fly through and see everything at a glance. But I do that when I travel too. Like I'd rather go to one place and stay there for three weeks than go to 30 places in one week. 
It sounds like you're very observant and that you notice things. Is that a learned skill? I think the more that, the older that I've become, definitely the more visual I've become. And a huge part of that is because I'm practicing it every day in the art room. And with yearbook, half of what it is is uh, visual design. So I definitely think, I think that that is something, whether I've intentionally invested in it or not because of my career choice, I've become much, much more visual. Question about creativity. How would you define creativity and what advice would you give to parents to support their children in learning to express creatively? For me, I think creativity is taking everything that's around us and filtering it through our own personal being Mm. so that it becomes a reflection of us and our personal experiences. And we've never been more than now in a place that we have access to so much, not just the physical surroundings, but everything that we can access from the internet. It's such a great opportunity to, for somebody who wants to learn more about anything, whether it is researching websites or watching videos or whatever it is, I think the opportunity to invest very little energy and get a lot out of it is really unique to this time. And so, you know, whether it's learning for art, if it's learning a new technique and watching a couple of videos and then allowing the learning process, allowing what is seen and heard and watched to kind of be filtered through your your personal being and allow it to become uniquely you. I think that 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 filtering is where creativity happens. Why do you think over time people lose that ability to do that filtering? It seems to be that, you know, when you're younger, you sort of take all these inputs and then you're happy to produce. And then, and this is a big generalization, but generally the older you get, you're less willing to do that, right? There's a lot of judgment that's overlaid and, mm-hmm. oh, well, I'm not good at this and I can't draw or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever. And then that stops for a lot of people. Why do you think that happens? I have a theory. Yes. I think that it has to do with not just a fear of failure, but the sense that every amount, every bit of energy that we put into something, we want to have an outcome that is valuable. Mm. And I think that maybe we don't value the failures or the oopsies or the yeah. whoopsies, you know, nearly as much as we could or should. And I think that, you know, like in my class, I see the difference between a fifth grader and an eighth grader, right? The fifth grader isn't quite as concerned about making a mistake or failing or whatever. And the eighth grader does start to be a little bit more wanting the outcome to look good. And sometimes the outcome doesn't look good. And I've been doing this for 50 years and there's still (laughs) stuff that I make that I think that's probably not worth saving. Yeah. (laughs) And I do get it. I do get it because when you invest energy, you want to have the outcome reflect that level of energy. But I think the younger, the younger kids are more fiercely open to just putting it out there and not being so tied to the results. And maybe that's too bad. Maybe we need to kind of I don't know what we do to change that because I do think that it's it's that energy that goes into something without the outcome necessarily being what you expect. That's where so much innovation comes from. That's where creative solutions come from. If everything turned out just like you wanted it to, you might have more paintings to put on the wall, but they might not be as unique or interesting and they certainly wouldn't be innovative and and new. So it would be nice if there was a way of preserving that bravado that a child has and taking it into adulthood. If you want to be good at the piano, if you want to be a good artist, if you want to be good at anything, like you just need to be diligent and disciplined and just sort of do it like time after time. And it saddens me when kids say like, I'm not creative or like, I'm not, you know, I can't draw. What do you do when those, when people, kids come into your class and say that? 
part of that, it's a defensive mechanism, yeah. right? Part of it is, I want to say this out loud first so that if anybody <laughs> yes. looks at my artwork, then they won't judge it too harshly because I've already been my worst judge. And so it kind of depends a little bit on the kid if it's coming from that. It, you know, sometimes it, I can say it's just art, you know, just enjoy the process. I don't even care if it turns out great. Start and work your way at it and just keep working at it. And if it's a mess, it's a mess. So what? We're going to start over again tomorrow. It's just paper. It's just paint. It's just so trying to kind of defuse mm. this pressure a little bit is sometimes helpful. Trying to encourage the kids to speak about their own work as well as each other's positively. Not that they have to lie if they don't like it. They don't have to say that they like it or don't. they don't have to say that it's awful. But to encourage them to find something that they like about it. Well, what is one thing that's working? Okay, great. Leave that thing alone. What's one thing that you're not happy with? This area over here? Okay, well, what can we do? about that to make it, you know, something that you, because I think along those lines of what you were saying, it's not just the amount of energy that you put into something, but art, and I think this is the same with music and literature, writing, it's not a straight line. No. So how we experience all of those things is if it's a performance, if it's a book that we read the first page to the last page, if it's a piece of artwork, we only see the finished piece of artwork. And so we have this assumption that the author wrote the first word in the novel and then the second and then the third and then the fourth until he got to the end and then he was done. And that's, of course, not the way that it worked. There were thousands of words written for every hundred that was kept. There were revisions. There were edits. Maybe the first novel got thrown in the trash and another clean piece of paper came out. You know, there's... And the same with art, too. And you don't really see that process when you see the finished artwork. So, you know, trying to also let the kids know, I'm not always happy with what I do. Most of it is about trying to figure out how to fix something that's not working. Come back to it with fresh eyes tomorrow. You don't have to like everything that you make. If at the end of the quarter there are five projects that you've done that you're happy with, that's pretty good. So that they know that the ratio of success is such that they can just let go of some of the pressure of making a masterpiece every day. I want to loop back to the yearbook and I remember meeting you when I was interviewing and you were talking about the yearbook and you were said, you said, you know, it's won these awards and then I got a chance to see it and I thought I'd seen your yearbooks before and I looked, it was wow, like I'd never seen anything like it. What was the evolution from, I imagine it wasn't, didn't start out fully formed like we've been talking about, what was the evolution from, I imagine, a fairly traditional yearbook to what it is now? Well... We've had really great yearbook teachers in in the past. I had been here for, let's see, when Mike and I moved here, he started teaching and I substitute taught for two years. And then I started teaching full-time art. And then I think it was the next year that I took on yearbook. And I can remember vividly the moment that that happened. It was in the summer leading into either my second or third year, maybe my third year. And Michael Smith said, so caught me at school standing at the front desk right where Miss Vicky stands. And he said, so it looks like the teacher who taught yearbook last year is not going to be returning. She's moving. I think her husband's job was taking them to another state. And so I was wondering if you would maybe advise the yearbook staff. And I thought, wow, I don't know what that looks like or means. And I think it might not be in my comfort zone because I haven't taken journalism classes. I'm an artist. I love reading. I love stories, but I'm an artist. And I said, well, if you need me to do that, I will do that because that's what you do, right? You're 
as part of this Davidson Day team. And if I if they need me to do something, I want to be helpful. And he said, well, we think that you're the best person for the job. And again, I thought, oh, no, <laughs> this might not be. I just don't know that I'm qualified. But it was a little bit like those business cards that I printed. And then I turned around and said, I can do this. And I said, I will do this. Leaving that conversation, I did not feel like I was qualified for the job. But I have this tendency to overcompensate all of my insecurities with a tremendous amount of effort. So it's a great I was, strategy. I was willing to put in the effort, and I had a great editor-in-chief, Julia, uh, who had been editor-in-chief two years before that and had been on staff since she was on eighth grade. And I learned as much from her as anything else. She really did a phenomenal job of laying out the whole process of scheduling, of organizing the way that the yearbook had been structured. And she graduated that year, and the following year, a new editor-in-chief was in that position, and she had some ideas about how to change things up. The internet was kind of newer-ish back then, and so she said, hey, can we organize it kind of like with the tabs across the top, like if you opened Google and you wanted to do searches, and we can have the academic tab and the athletic tab and, and whatnot. So I think between the next year, we had a different editor-in-chief. And I think each year, the kids brought new ideas to it. I had done a lot of research, reading other people's yearbooks, researching online content, organization, design. Allison Klopp is our Jostens rep, and she's phenomenal. She actually, the very first year that I taught, I called her, I don't know, like, the week before classes started. And I said, what do I teach on day one? And she kind of laughed and she said, if you want, I will come in and teach for you. That's cool. I know, right? And I said, no, no, I can do this. I just need to know what to teach. And so she kind of gave me some general ideas. And I said, great. What about day two? <laughs> and so we kind of went through this. And day 160. Exactly, yeah. exactly. After the, f- the first couple of weeks, <laughs> I started to form opinions. And very quickly, I kind of formed my own opinions on what things would be good to work on, how to make the book reflect our student body more, how to elevate the level of copy, how to integrate better photography to get higher quality cameras, things like that. So every year, the passion has grown exponentially. And after that first year, I told Michael Smith, I really like this. And the second year, I said, I like this as much as my art classes. (laughs) And then the third year, I was like, I would volunteer to do this job now (laughs) because it's so exciting. It's a big art project, right? It is a 180-page art project. And like every art project that I've ever done, you look at where you're heading, you break it down into achievable goals, you set a schedule, you identify deadlines, you delegate the work, You get your materials, you train, you move forward, and you make a few mistakes along the way. You probably make a lot of mistakes along the way. And some of those mistakes turn out to be better than the ideas that you had to begin with. To me, the opportunity to work with the staff not only kind of lets me use my creative skills in a way that is different from my art classes, but it allows me to help my staff members channel their ideas in a really meaningful project, a project that, and I always tell my yearbook kids this, I say, you know, when I graduated from high school, I had two big cardboard boxes stuffed with all of my memorabilia, my pom-poms from cheerleading and my favorite essays from language arts and my pictures from when my French class went to Paris. And each year when I would move 
to a new location. I would take out the stuff that I didn't remember what it was, you know, what those memories were tied to. And the box would get smaller until I have a pretty small box now. But the thing that I never gave up was my four yearbooks. Mm. And I still have them. I bring them in and I show them to the kids and they look at the black and white pictures of me with my like really big permed hair <laughs> and say, I can't. You look believe- awesome. I That's know, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, Miss Thomas. Actually, it's kind of funny because a lot of times they look up Tiffany Thomas and they don't realize that that wasn't my maiden name anyway. But to me, it's just a big art project and it's a way to do something that I think will be preserved and appreciated by a broader audience for a long time. And it's it's not just the product, but this is like a mama pride. I'm so proud of the energy and effort that the yearbook kids put into it and how important it is for them, for the product to represent not just them, not just their friends, but the little tiny eaglets downstairs yeah. and the kids that are virtual this year and the kids that are not just on the basketball team, but that are on all of the sports teams and in all of the arts productions and watching it become a meaningful project to them. Ugh, it's the best. You used a really interesting term. You said it, we're, we're preserving. And... Normally a school year, you want to sort of capture that moment in time and sort of treasure it. And But we've just all gone through a school year and we're co- recording this in early March, which has just been tremendously challenging for, for the staff, for the kids, for the families. It's just a year which hopefully we'll never sort of go through again. How do you begin to approach a year like this where... There is tremendously beautiful moments happening all the time, right? As you walk around the school and you go into classrooms, but it's also that's overlaid with difficulty, whether it's wearing masks or having to distance and just, it's probably not a year that many of us will look back and go, oh, I wish I could live that again, you know, whereas there's many other years of our lives where we often go, oh, that was just such a beautiful time. So how do you go about sort of capturing and preserving this sort of moment in time while also we're wishing a lot of the time I was in the rearview mirror. Don't you feel so fortunate? Like, really, like, we are so fortunate. To be in school. To be in school. Yeah. To see each other. Oh, yeah, every day. To play sports, to walk the halls, to learn. I feel like, oh, my gosh, we have so much to be grateful for. And definitely there are losses and compromises and frustrations but you do have losses and compromises and frustrations in every year just different ones Mm -hmm. and maybe these seem bigger and and they are definitely different but you know what when you have your four year books lined up on the shelf one of them is not going to look like the others the one from this year is going to tell a different story and part of that is about the compromise but we're resilient and I think that that's something to celebrate when Jesse and Jaden were tasked with identifying the theme for the year they chose the theme stronger together Mm. they came up with that completely on their own and they came up with that in May of last year two months after we had gone virtual, six weeks, I guess, after we had gone virtual, um, at the beginning of the summer when we didn't know what the school year would look like. I think some of us, me included, thought, well, gosh, all of this crazy pandemic stuff was going to be dealt with by then. We're (laughs) going to go back to school and it's going to be normal. And we'll be looking back on this last spring as something that was an oddity. But we didn't realize what the school year was going to look like. And yet, you know, I think that there's something that's very powerful and positive in that message, Stronger Together, that maybe the girls had the foresight of seeing or maybe it was just hoping that we would be back in person. Maybe it didn't even have to do with that. Maybe even in a virtual world, having each other also in that virtual world, it's still a means by which we are together and by which we can support each other and do need each other. So to me, I think you can tell us the same story in a lot of 
ways. And how you choose to see that story, if it's a story about trial and tribulation, maybe it's a story about trial and tribulation that leads to success. Difficulties that lead to success, that lead to enlightenment, that lead to something good. I think we all have a choice in how we interpret our own stories. And I think the yearbook, more so than a hardened news report or something like that, I think the yearbook, in my mind, is really about celebrating who we are so that 10 or 20 years from now we can look back and see our best selves, celebrate our best selves. And yes, we're going to have like awkward moments that are in the yearbook, we're going to have the photograph that I didn't want to have, you know, all of that's part of it. But by and large, to tell stories and to highlight people in ways that they want to be highlighted is one of the core tasks and a great pleasure, I think. How will you look back on this year? Well, don't get me wrong. I'm going to be very glad when it's in the rearview mirror because there's obviously a lot of anxiety that comes with all of the question marks around us. I got my first vaccine shot a week ago. Me too. Congratulations. Yep. So exciting. And it's true. Like when we drove away, I felt a sigh of relief. I can't wait to get the next one. And I can't wait for everybody who wants to get both of them or the Johnson & Johnson single or whatever. That's going to be a lovely, lovely day. But I think looking back on this, I think overall I'm going to feel and I'm not just saying this, Pete, because I'm talking to you, but like I feel like our school has done such an amazing job of managing this year. And what a test, you know. But everybody that I talk to, whether it's, you know, friends from other schools, friends from other states, my parents, you know, they always ask, you know, well, what's going on there? Well, we're in school. We're in school. And they clean every night with this industrial cleaner and then they clean between uh, we spray down everything between classes and the kids are all masked and they do it like they do it without a lot of fuss they wear the masks and I think you know they understand that that's just what it's going to be this year and you might as well just do it and, and move on I'm really proud of us. I'm really proud of the school. I'm so incredibly proud to be part of it. Yeah, thanks for saying that. I actually had a moment today, which was, I teared up actually when a parent was pulling through the parking lot in the morning as we're scanning the kids and he just rolled down his window and, and stopped and said, you know, they, he had a couple of kids start new this year and he said, you know, I'm just really proud of the way that the school has handled this and, you know, we were really worried and we've got, you know, we're recording this in early March and we've got this far and well done your team and I just was like thanks and it, that happens more often than I I guess probably I should that I actually recognize but it was just that there's so many people who have worked just so tremendously hard just to keep school open you know as much as we can and a lot of people have had to sacrifice and, and things and it's you know my overarching sort of feeling a lot of the time is just sort of apprehension and fear that like, well, what's going to happen next? Like there's, and, you know, I'm just tremendously concerned about the well-being of all our faculty and staff and obviously our kids and, you know, broader families and everything. And so I, it's, and this is sad in a way, but it's been hard for me to really celebrate any victories we've had because I'm just glad that they're not defeats, you know, because the stakes are so high. So It'll be interesting once this is over or, you know, sort of behind us to look back and, and sort of reflect on what we've been able to do. But at the moment, it's just tremendously difficult because I'm just fearful of what, like, the next hurdle will be. Maybe you should keep a gratitude track. I do. Every do day. you? Good. Every day. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because, well, and I get it. I get it. In your role, I get that you are 
conscious constantly of what could be happening, you know. Our kids are learning. Our kids are learning in an environment that they can learn best in. I see my role primarily as the, you know, the safety and well-being of people. Now just the stakes are just so high, you know, and it's, this is (laughs) my first year of a headship, you know, and you're just thinking, man, I just want people to be well. And so then there are times where I actually switch off that and walk around and notice and look and we talked about before observing and like how many great things are happening within very quickly it shifts to trying to see around the corner to like what's the what's the next thing that might be coming our way that we have to we have to tackle yeah it's been such a unique time you know i want to share two really quick things with you one has to do with the yearbook and one has to do with art and this particular year because we have been in session, the yearbook staff, with all, with the exception of, I guess, uh, one week before Christmas and then two weeks after Christmas, so three weeks in total, that everybody was virtual. And then, of course, a constant smattering of students and teachers and so forth that are virtual for a variety of reasons. But our yearbook staff has been able to, for the most part, do their jobs the way that they have in the past. They have been very conscious of social distancing and keeping their masks on and wiping down the camera equipment and all of those things that are unique to this year, but they still have been able to get in and out of the classrooms to interview students and to take photographs. And I feel so fortunate because I know from having communicated with advisors from other schools and then also our Justin's rep, that is not the case with the majority of schools in our area or across the country. There are so many schools who have been virtual for the majority of the school year, and it is incredibly difficult to reach out to families and ask them to do the job of submitting photos and interviews, especially because this year is stressful, especially because it's different even answering emails, which is something that is notoriously difficult for yearbook students to send out an email of questions to the basketball team and maybe have a few of them respond in a normal year. It's even fewer this year because of the circumstances. So it's been really so important and valuable for our kids, my kids, the yearbook kids, to be in person and to be able to collect that information in person. So much so that Allison Klopp, our Justin's rep, sent a note just going into our third deadline. And she said, thanks so much for being able to, or for submitting your deadlines on time for the first three deadlines of the year. You are the only school who has done that out of the schools that I represent. And she represents about 50 schools. And that's not to say that the yearbook staffs at those other schools are slacking. They're doing a very hard job. And we've been so fortunate to be able to do our job in person in this in this school. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. The other thing that is so cool, I think, okay, so like this is a cruddy year, right? All of this pandemic stuff stinks. We don't like it. However, Going into the school year, when I looked at my schedule and I realized that we had adjusted things on the schedule so that there were six blocks and there were certain days that I was teaching all six blocks. Wow, and I thought, yeah. there's no way that I'm going to be able to teach, you know, a different lesson to each of my art classes for four classes and then two yearbook classes. So I was pretty nervous about that. And then I got to thinking, and last year when uh, we all went virtual in March, Julie Langley, the lower school art teacher, actually put together these little art videos that she sent out to some of her little ones. And I thought, I wonder if I if I could do something along those lines. And then, of course, I grew up in the era of Bob Ross, who is well known for um, his hour-long TV show where he did a piece of art in that hour on the show and people would just follow along and make their versions. So I also have, like you know, having had Ruby in my class first quarter, I have some fifth graders first quarter, another some second quarter, third quarter, and fourth quarter. So I'm going through the same lessons. So I thought maybe I can capitalize on this idea, do a lesson a day, 
that ends up with a little piece of artwork each day, put it together in a video. The kids can watch. They can stop the video when they want to back up and take another look at it. If they get confused, if they need to get uh, materials or whatever, they can go faster if they're up for it. So I can be like mini me right in front of them, like Tiffany point two. And it gave us a lot of flexibility so that the kids that were virtual were able to take their materials home and also have that available to them. When I was virtual for two weeks, because I was considered a close contact, so I could work from home and still have that flexibility of this is the daily lesson. So the first 20 minutes, you're going to just follow along and learn a new technique, learn about color mixing, learn about some artists, all kinds of lessons that can be incorporated into that little 20 minutes. Funny thing is, Now that we are finished with the third quarter, I've been kind of asking the kids, you know, so my sixth, seventh, and eighth graders that have had me before, um, we haven't been doing this kind of thing before. What did you think of it? And I've had a lot of kids that were like, it made it less stressful Mm. because I, I could just back it up. I could just watch the video at my own speed. We also did no homework this and no makeup in art this year, which was a big hit. Everybody seemed to really go for that. So there are certain things that have come out of this Absolutely. year. Absolutely, yeah. And I think Mr. Weehan was the one that said something about um, creativity is born out of, I don't know if there's a phrase, creativity is born out of... Adversity, maybe? Adversity, maybe. Creativity is born out of adversity. Sounds good. Yes. And I do think that the adversity that came with this year has forced me as a teacher to consider options and ways of conveying information that I haven't utilized before and that in some ways are more available now than ever before. And I will continue to incorporate some of those skills going forward even when we're not masked, even when we're sitting next to each other because I think it's the... You know, kids had a really positive experience with it. It's such a great idea. And talking about kids being able to, we often talk in schools about kids being able to learn at their own pace. And it's such an incredible way of doing it because, as you said, they can pause it, they can they can repeat it. I, I was a technology teacher in Australia. This is sort of, geez, like 2005 through 2008. And I got into screen casting, like, you know, where you just show what you're doing on the screen because you had 20, it was an all boys school, but so 24 boys all learning coding and they're all at a different place and it was maddening. And so I realized I could record a four minute video or like a series of them and they could work at their own pace. And then that allowed me to work kids one-on-one and yeah sure there's a lot of upfront work having to produce them but then the lessons ran so much so much more smoothly and I, I can imagine with the the kids in art it's just you know sometimes the pace is too quick inadvertently just because you miss something or what do they mean by that and actually we've talked about Ruby's art process one of the things she's done over the years she loves Jan Brett the the illustrator and the, the children's book author and so she has videos like that online and Ruby over the year, like ever since she was very little, like, I mean, you know, first, second grade, that was her iPad time to be able to watch them pause, draw, and then sort of go again, you know, like, and that's how she learned a lot of the techniques. It's such a cool way. And just, I think education is going to be forever shaped. Like there's going to be pre-pandemic and post-pandemic in terms of education, because it's the way it's going to be done from now on is going to be very, very, very different. You know, making things independent in time and space where it doesn't matter where that kid is, that can be at home, it can be in the morning, it can be in the evening, but they can still do their art, which is amazing. You know, when you replicated you essentially infinite times, like anyone could be watching that. What is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? Okay, I'm I love reading. Actually, I love listening to Audible. Me too. That's like I can get so much cleaning done while I'm listening love to Audible. a book on tape. I know it's crazy. So, nonfiction, Atul Gawande, mm-hmm. Being Mortal. It's amazing. He's written a checklist manifesto as well for people get super geeky. Sorry, but Oh my gosh, yes. 
short stories, nonfiction, Oliver Sacks, The Man That Mistook His Wife for a Hat, or any of the Oliver Sacks, Awakenings is Incredible. For poetry, David Rakoff, Love, Dishonor, Mary, Die. Brilliant writer. Just the use of the English language. His control is just phenomenal. Fiction, anything by Barbara Kingsolver. What would be one, what's one of your favorites of her books? Oh, well, like I have on Audible, literally, I think I've, I've listened to a lot of hers. Flight Behavior, it's all about butterflies, amazing. This is the slow rapid fire, because the one thing that I have a really hard time with, the older that I get, the bean trees, amazing, is recalling names. You're very good at that. You're very, very good at recalling names and titles of speakers and books and uh, I'm not but I can almost draw what the cover looks like from memory if that helps prodigal summer Atul Gawande complications not read that uh, he's an amazing man geez wow he's he's an amazing man and actually, the author that I was just introduced to by Dave Hall is uh, John Kennedy Toole, A Confederacy of Dunces. Mm. Again, just somebody who has such an incredible gift using the English language to describe a mundane person, character, place, and making it feel rich and vibrant and interesting. Amazing. What do you like doing in your free time? So my free time lately has been completely focused on this house. Three years ago, Mike and I bought this little 100-year-old home in downtown Cornelius. It's a block off of Main Street, so we feel like we're right in the middle of this charming little downtown area. We hear the sirens go by from the fire station and the police station, and we can walk to the neighboring restaurants, and there's an art center that is under construction, mm-hmm. and I cannot wait for that to open up. It's amazing, yeah. It's amazing. But we've been focusing, the house is 100 years old, so pretty much all of our spare time has been about identifying what structural issues need to be addressed and then what we can do that just a hundred years of neglect has left so we we renovated the kitchen we renovated the bathroom I repainted all of the walls between Mike and I like he's really good at demo and I can draw pretty pictures so like I know what I want we just have to have the right tradesmen in place to actually make it happen but we've been working on the yard lately so we built this last summer a pergola and a deck and a fire pit and a fence and a garage. We had help with that. We didn't do that ourselves. And paths. And now I'm going to be planting. I know I'm very definitely in a nesting stage of life and the house is getting all of the attention. Wow. We'll have people coming to you for for advice around renovations after this. Yeah. I'm full of opinions and feel free to take them or leave them. (laughs) If you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? I would play an instrument. Which one? I used to say a saxophone. Mm. Since I've known Mr. Friedlein, I would probably say piano, but then because I know Mr. Friedlein, I would never say the piano because I, he's so amazing that um, I would, want to do it well. Here's the thing, though. I did play the piano for about two years when I was a kid, and I just wasn't... It it didn't click. It didn't work. But I think I would love to be able to snap my fingers and play an instrument so that I could correlate the elements of music with the elements of art, because I think that they're very much related. They both have rhythm. One's visual. One's audible. I think that there's a lot of overlap, and I think that that's really interesting. I I think it would give me a newfound appreciation for music if I could actually play it. Very cool. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a similar career to yours? And you can pick whichever career that architect, architectural illustrator, teacher, whichever, all of the above. I also worked for the census for a year, just saying. (laughs) All that. (laughs) I think it's really important to not force a straight line. I think that you can bring value to your life by saying yes to everything as long as it's not going to hurt you or somebody else. 
allowing yourself to make mistakes and invest energy in something just for the sake of the process and not necessarily for the product. And it's great to have an idea of where you're going, but I think that in the course of studying and practicing architecture and illustration and a teacher, I think that what I have found is that what makes my life interesting for me and me able to bring value to my current job is the twists and turns that my path has had along the way to get me here. And I would say, do your best, you know, identify a goal, move in that direction, and then be open to opportunities that present themselves that might lead you in a direction that you didn't even know existed. Well said. What inspires you? Can I just say one thing that has inspired me recently? Yeah. So one of the projects that I do in art is making an owl acrylics in acrylics. And so those little videos that I do, you know, the kids follow along. And inevitably, one of the things that I love about teaching is that I can give a lesson to 12 sixth graders. And the paintings that they do will be uniquely their own in some way. They will make their own decisions. They'll make adjustments. And so we'll have, if it's an acrylic owl, we'll have... 12 different acrylic owls. However, you know, by and large, I'm kind of coaching them through some of the color choices and things like that. And this last week, we did that project, and the kids loved it, and they did such an amazing job. And Naya Carnaggio is a seventh grader, Mm -hmm. and she made some choices that were very different in how she used the brush, the colors that she chose, little choices that were different, and her project is so much better than mine. Ah, that's so cool. I love that. I love that. And it happens all the time. What a great way to end this. This has been so much fun, Tiffany. I really appreciate you taking so much time to chat with me today. Thanks. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.